This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today is, well, he's the manager of arguably the best cinematic institution in the country, the Astor Theatre. He's also a film programmer, a film critic, on uh, usually on ABC Morning Breakfast, but I prefer his latest title that I caught in a Facebook post of, uh, maybe a week ago now, which uh, someone who was addressing something to him said, the spiritual CEO, the Astor Chapel, the Reverend Zach Hepburn. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Zach Hepburn to One Heat Minute. Blake's lovely to be here, sir, and you know uh, my constituents and uh, my parish—they're very happy to have me here as well. So, yeah, bless you all. Oh, bless, bless indeed. Blessings be upon us both. Because uh, look, the Astor is uh, is an institution. Recently, Zach's also said uh, for folks who are listening to this, it is going to drop close to the time that we're recording, a few weeks away. Um, but a, a a retrospective of the films of Paul Thomas Anderson is the latest thing that I've seen him drop out on on there as well. So that sounds like right up my alley, right up my alley, Mr. Zach, right up my alley. So I'm very happy to hear that, sir. He's also one of my all-time favorites. But, uh, you know, uh, we're getting around. We might be able to get a Michael Mann retrospective at some point. I don't, I don't know. That Just might be, keep me posted, he'll, my friend. Keep me posted. too big for us. I don't know if they ever made a DCP of Black Hat. I don't. See. We'll see. <laughs> this is the thing. There is some cut of Black Hat that only went to HBO Now in the States, which is the HBO on-demand streaming service, which was not the theatrical cut, and it doesn't exist on DVD or Blu-ray. It doesn't exist. It is somewhere in the streaming landscape, and it doesn't exist anywhere else. This is the pleasure of being a Michael Mann fan. You hear about cuts of the film that don't exist anywhere except some random streaming service that is not in your country because it's geo-blocked. So fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. Quite ironic for a film about a hacker, but anyway, that's uh, what, what do I? What, yeah. <laughs> what it's a we... gift that keeps giving that film, so that's fine. It, it does indeed. Look, yeah. I know a guy with a podcast. If he, he knows a thing or two about Michael Mann, I will uh, let let him know. Guys, this is um the 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 infamous Kate Manolini's cafe scene between Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, um, which they were in the same scene. Laves and chance, it's not two different people. They're in the same seats. This is what happened. <laughs> actually spans, if you look at the original theatrical cut of the film on Blu-ray, spans from the 89th minute to the 95th minute, really. But today, you're listening to episode... Oh, I think it's greater than episode 96, because there have been a few bonus episodes in there. But this is the 96th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus, Heat. And Dr. Zach Hepburn is joining me for a minute that actually begins. It's the 96th minute. He gets like this sort of the self-satisfied grins that these two titans of new Hollywood cinema, these two method actors of the Brando school get to sort of, you know, they, they, they've just 
you know, uh, I, I think George Costanza, Jason Alexander used to do as George Costanza when he nailed the line in Seinfeld. Uh, the the amazing uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus uh, used to say that Jason Alexander would like put his hand out as if he was presenting something, and that that ask him, "What are you doing?" And he goes, "I lay this shit before you," and that is basically the beginning of the minute we get here is this phenomenal little knowing glance it's so close to looking down the lens like hey everyone wasn't that great like didn't we do that in this movie but it's just it's just enough um so we just skate on the end of that and then we get this beautiful revelation scene that happens with vincent and his crew so zach and i are going to watch it it's a just a magnificent little coda to the coffee house scene which you've seen and a lot of great folks have just been talking about it we see this little coffee house coda, and then we get back to the robbery homicide division in LA and check out what the fallout is after that cafe scene. So, ladies and gents, you guys have a listen along. Zach and I are going to watch the scene together now, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. They dumped us. What? They dumped us. What do you mean they dumped us? Chris slipped his tail. He doesn't talk about their scores with Charlene, so there's nothing for me to get from Marciano. I just tried. What about Cerrito? Same. Transponders got put on a bus to San Clemente. They dumped all our surveillance? Yeah. At the same time, 9 p.m. I had coffee with McCulley half an hour ago! We were on you. Then Macaulay drives into LAX where surveillance can't fly over because of flight paths. His car's still there. He's gone. Does anybody have any idea? Just missed the swear. <laughs> just right. missed the swear. Just you the just missed the swear. swear. You know, it may be because I'm an Aussie, but like the late show, the, the original sort of uh, uh, working dog late show, uh, with Rob Sitch and Santa Chilaro and Mick Malloy and Tony Martin, they did this stupid sketch, which has irrevocably changed my brain, um, where they did a, a sketch about Graham Gooch, um, who they, they ask you to guess what Graham Gooch is mouthing his words when he gets taken, Shane Warne takes him for a wicket. And it's something like, um, gosh... Gee, I'm annoyed with myself. I think are two of the like multiple choice questions, and I, every time I see someone go, I'm just like, gosh, gee, gee. He's, anno- gee he's annoyed with himself. Yes, we're just about to get to Mrs. Swear. Um, that's the 96th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus, Heat. Zach, what a great! I love, I love the coda at the beginning of this scene. I think it might be one of my favorite couple of seconds of that whole amazing exchange that rolls into it. I just love it to pieces. I may have missed the Pacino swear, but I got the De Niro scowl. So I'm really, really happy <laughs> yes. about that. Yes. Um, and yeah, look, I mean, really, that that, that sequence is... Um, I, I don't think there is really anything quite like that sequence that's ever been committed to film. There is just this, you know, palpable sense of energy that no matter what screen you you see it on um that comes through uh so it's it is just an incredibly impressive scene and just that as you said that 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 small moment of, of silence where you just have these two you know screen titans looking at each other but they are not 
Al Pacino and Robert De Niro in that scene at that no. point. You know, they are fully the characters. You, you, they, they have vanished behind their characters, and that is just a, a real testament to their ability as performers. So, um, but what I love about the, the the thing that follows after that is, you know, that the, the extra scene where. Uh, you know, Vincent's crew is having a, a bit of a powwow. Is it just everyone looks completely and utterly exhausted in that scene? Yes. And it, it's it, they, it's almost that like, they're mimicking uh, the 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 big uh, <sighs> moment that the audience has <laughs> just had. You know, you've got Ted Levine kind of you know bent over his chair, going. You know, he doesn't even say anything. He's got that <laughs> classic sort of like office posture going on, uh, and it's just this this scene that everyone. It's either because they're they're so tired. Uh, because that momentous scene has just occurred, or they just realise that they've got a, you know a whole other hour and a bit to go in this <laughs> film as well. So I'm not sure which one it is, but um, I was certainly there with them. I think it's good read. It's a good read, whichever way you go there. I really like that. I just love it. It's like seven seconds. So if we're like we're doing the math, it's like seven seconds into this minute, and I love that in a way, and because you know we've seen. Vincent's crazy one-upsmanship with the helicopter. He gets Neil. He goes and does this unexpected thing in the cafe. He lays all the cards on the table. And Vincent walks out of that scene. What's so tremendous about the whole scene is that Vincent walks out like there's going to be fallout. You feel like the swagger, the real positive swagger that he comes in here. He's casual. He's energized. The positive fallout of this scene is that something's going to happen with Neil and his crew. They're going to make a mistake because I've done something that's drastically unpredictable. And so yes. his whole team are with him. They're like, yep, this is going to shake him up. Like this interaction is going to shake him up. And so when he walks in the room, he's like, okay, cool. I'm good. Like, um, tell me all the good news. And I love here. It's like 12 seconds into the minute. You see Michael T. Williamson's face. He's yeah. scrunched up on the phone like, oh, <laughs> shit. Here he is. Like, I've been on the phone for half an hour, like knowing that Vincent is on his way, just trying to give him something, anything. Yeah. And I love that Wes Studi has just got the balls to go, they dumped us. And they're like, yeah. what? He's like, yeah. hold on, what, what? They dumped us. He's like, and I love the change. I love that, I love Pacino. This is what these two guys do so well. And I imagine, and I've seen it so great on the Astor, writ large on, you know, beautiful old 35 mil prints or 70 mm. mils or whatever. It's just the the turn of a facial expression from like this deep, you know, confident satisfaction to like, what the fuck are you saying to me? Like it just, it took, it took the most split second there. Like, I'm just going to like freeze frame it so I can get you in this face. Like that, that face, it's about the 15, between 15 and 16 seconds. (laughs) It just changes from like, what? Like what the hell is going on here? That, that face. What? You uh, you talk about uh, you know uh, the Late Show. Uh, what about uh, Glen Gary, Glen Ridge, or Glen Gary, Glen Ross? <laughs> this is this is the most uh, sort of Glen Gary, Glen Ross moment uh, in all of Heat, I think. Where yes. there's just you know these yes. guys in a room, they've got their sleeves up, their ties are uneven, and they just look perpetually pissed off. Oh, and in yeah. this moment, it's like. Uh, it, it is literally like I think the card analogy works so well. It's like going all in. It's like I've got four of a kind. This person cannot beat me. And then just someone just yeah. puts a royal flush on the table, and you're like, yeah. "Fuck you, yeah. I'm out." Yeah, like, exactly. Just like yeah. there's nothing you can do with this with this moment. I, I think it's so beautiful. Um, and it, it, I think Pacino's eye acting in it is fantastic. I mean, if anyone ever comes up with a drinking game for Hayden, you know, <laughs> that, 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 there could be subcultures out there that certainly come up with them. Oh, uh, but you know, there you hasn't have to have Zach. This is the 
This is the 96th episode of this show, and there hasn't been a one-eight-minute drinking game yet. And I just love that you're the man that brings it up. You know, this is a guy who's an exhibitor. This is a guy who has not only watched this film as a film critic or as a fan, he may have programmed it at times in his life. So I just love that you're like dialed in, like there needs to be a drinking. Like if you really want to get and turn this into the room, we really... (laughs) Look, it's all, you know, nowadays cinema exhibition is all about audience participation in a way or or eventalizing sessions. And as as a holy a cinema text as Heat is, I don't think it's above uh, a drinking game or two. No. In fact, I would would encourage it. uh, The show endorses a a drinking game to go with this this movie. You have to have me back at some point, Blake, for the the end of it, and we'll uh, we'll, we'll, we'll align uh, that sort of methodology... (laughs) to the test so but i mean really i think everyone needs to take a shot when uh pacino's eyes dart either right or left across the screen i mean i remember when i was growing up i had an action man action figure where he had this little kind of um uh, lever at the back of his head where you could flick his eyes uh either the right or left uh you know if he could hear danger and i think pacino is really embodying uh the the action man eye acting oh, uh, methodology and, here and and look for folks who are listening to this episode 96 you would have heard the previous episode which is the incredible sight and sound editor at uh, the british film institute nick james is the uh is the uh, uh guest of one heat minute and what um what nick said is that just as a token gesture of his minute just researching it he just wrote down he, he just thought i'll do the exercise sometimes they teach you this as your kid a screenwriting 101 like write down every in your favorite movie take your favorite scene and write down everything that happens so first you start with the dialogue then it's the stage direction then it's the acting direction like what are the actors actually doing in the scene are they do they need you know, are they moving? Are they are they talking to one another? Are they got gestures? And and Nick James is a bit of a sort of, you know, who, who literally wrote the BFI modern classic book on heat. Um, said, oh, I'll just go through this exercise where I'll just write down every facial expression change that Robert De Niro does, just for like he didn't he doesn't he doesn't read it all out in the episode. You guys can listen to it if this is if you haven't caught up with it yet. Please go back and listen to it, and then come back and listen to Zach and I. But he is like, I gesture to the right. I, you know, eyes face forward, um, you know, uh, tilt of head, you know, it's like, it is this, the parrying, like, I don't think for all the stuff that happens in really complex scenes with movement, I can't, there is not, no one's ever showed me a scene in any film where two actors are complimenting and reacting to one another just with facial expressions in such a complex way that doesn't feel like a crazy tick performance. It just feels super organic. Like Mm. check the door, check him, think about something. So it's like you look up to your right to think about what your response is going to be. You look to him, you look over his shoulder to the exit, you look left to another exit, then you look back at him, then the tilt of the head. And then when he tilts his head, you see Pacino's character tilt his head. It's like, it's just this artful thing, and it's mm. so so crazy to look at. And I, I even after I had that great conversation with Nick, I I went back and I tried to do it, and it's almost impossible. It's like it's like an yeah, impossible yeah. exercise to 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 map that arc. And I wonder if man ever, you know, as the fastidious kind of crazy professional that he is, ever sort of told them the way that he wanted to do it, or if he just marvelled like us. He sat there and just watched these two guys like build this performance gesture by gesture until he was like, "That's perfect. I'm done." 
Yeah, I mean, particularly for me with, with, with Pacino, I think you, know, you look at a lot of his roles throughout the course of his career, and I'm, you know, I'm going back to like even The Godfather yes. uh, here, and he's always got a tremendous presence with his eyes. Mm. And I think you know, before he became the, uh, you know, the, the Saturday Night Live punchline of the, the hoo-hahs and, and the yelling and stuff, he's always had this other sort of intensity. And I always take that back to his eye acting, and that goes to you know Carlito's Way, which is another favourite film of mine Great. that he appeared in. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon, oh. Serpico. They've, they've all, Dog Day, every... Dog Day is yeah. madness. He's unraveling yeah. in front of you, and yeah. the the his his eye acting in that is like that's where you see how truly unhinged he is because the camera it's just he, it just seems like his eyes fill up the whole frame. Every time he's on screen, it's just, oh, it's wow. It's so great. And I just thought about that. Like you said, with The Godfather too, it's another one across that table, that famous Salozzo scene where he's not saying a word because his, bro- his jaw's broken. He's just listening yeah. and his eyes yeah. are doing all the work in that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, um, so maybe that's a whole new uh, method that uh, Pacino uh, in his legacy can leave behind for performers, the, the Pacino eye acting Yes, class. Yes. Uh, but um, look, it, it really, uh, particularly rewatching uh, the film uh, in the lead up to this, particularly this scene, uh, really struck me because I mean, I you know, I, I remember seeing this film uh, actually upon its original theatrical release uh, in 1995. Yeah, uh, late 95, I, early 96 in Oz, I think something like that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I, I used to sneak out of high school and go into. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I can, I, I'm exonerated now. I'm a reverend. I can say whatever I want about this. It's all, you know, it's, it's all official it's business. Double, it's double uh, jeopardy. It's, they can't they, get you. They they'll can't. never, they will never take me alive. It's fine. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I used to sneak out of school and go uh, into uh, the Melbourne CBD. And you know, back then, um, you know, in the mid 1990s, there was actually you know CBD cinemas, uh, which yeah. would you, you know play films that you could go to that weren't in large shopping malls they were like street fronted cbd cinemas uh, and i saw this at the um, the village uh, burke street cinema uh, the village four as it was called village and four. um it was the only thx certified cinema in melbourne at the time so i i went to a daytime session of heat i think it was like 2 30 in the afternoon and it was like Packed, and you know I, this is this is not giving away any trade secrets nowadays. You cannot find a daytime session of a first release film packed in the middle of the day. I, no. I don't care what film it is. You no. no Star Wars, no first run, anything is going to be able to get that many people in during the day. And these were like massive cinemas as well too. There was like you know like three four hundred seat cinemas, and the place was just electric. Uh, so I really so remember good. that. So good. it was just. Just an experience to be able to go in there. You know, you, there, was, there was, you know, a, a ticket seller. You go, you said, you know, ticket for heat. You go upstairs, and it was like, I remember it was like this is a three-hour film in the middle of a day with like you know two, three hundred people seeing it. Um, but seeing seeing it on the big screen, uh, you know, was was such a different experience, and it, it was something that I think when the film came out subsequently on on home entertainment, I actually didn't go and get a copy of it. Yes, it was something that I really wanted to sort of contain as a cinematic experience. That's a really interesting point. That's a great point. That's a great point. For, like there are certain films where you go, if you'd ever seen it on the big screen, maybe for the first time, you're like, why would I ruin that? That was, that was pure cinema. Yeah. Cause it's, I mean, this is even when it, when it came out, it was a very, very early days of, of DVD when it, when it hit uh, the, uh, the home end stands as well. Yes. Uh, and I 
think uh, I could I could be wrong, but I think it was one of those very very early DVDs that you had to flip in the middle of it, which they used to refer to as a flipper. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I didn't fit get all the information. I didn't get the, I didn't get the first flipper disc of this one. Yeah. I was around yeah. for flipper disc, but I didn't get the first flipper. The, I got the first. It was like the next gen where they got we got super excited. Folks who were listening were just like, "What are these guys talking about?" Um, yeah. there when they made the full proper Warner Brothers, del, uh, you know, sort of deluxe edition that had special features and things like that. Um, that was from memory that had like a. a, a mildly reflective slipcase yes. over it. Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I remember getting that as well too. It was very, it was very exciting. Yes. Uh, but uh, look, I, I remember seeing it and then I, I thought, you know, I don't want to take it home on video because it was when you could still kind of rent it on, on video fairly because it would have just been probably more than likely a pan and scan version. And it, yes. was, it was really only till recently where the 4K uh, reissue came out and, and we played it at, at the Asta that I saw the film again uh in its entirety and um it's incredible how much it holds up it's it, it is you know and i had kind of just forgotten and it's obviously sounds silly to say because we're, we're, we're talking about this film minute by minute but just <laughs> just how involved each movement is like that the, there is so much going on in this film that it, it's almost you know uh, suffocating in a way <laughs> yes it's it's yeah. what i've found is a couple of folk have asked me usually when we're preparing for an episode it'll just be in the pre pre ramble that's not recorded and and you guys who are listening now they won't get it but some people have gone have you had a boring minute and i go no (laughs) not one like everything is loaded you know everything is loaded you know it uh, and uh Famously, my, I guess the my most famous example, or sort of the the signature example, I say, is the um, really great Melbourne-based uh, film critic Stephen Russell came and did the, the show. He did the fiftieth episode, the fiftieth minute, and he said to me, "Blake, this minute is there's nothing going on. He <laughs> so there's nothing going on, Blake. There's, there's a guy driving through a drive-in, and I go, just I go, that's cool. I just laughed and said, that's cool. Like legit, let's just let's just see what happens." And Stephen is a fan, as I know that you are, of Twin Peaks: The Return. So he'd been oh. binging on Lynch, watching The Return, and then he came back to the minute closer to the time that we were going to record the episode, and then all he could see was this sort of post-apocalyptic, you know, cinema is dead landscape where the scene was being set, and he was just like, it just blew his mind. He was like, oh my god, this is like this Lynchian post-apocalyptic space, and this is man occupying it, and then getting guys to shoot people in it. And so we had this amazing conversation, and I honestly, I'm just flabbergasted with every single scene like that. And I think some of the, even this dialogue scene um, that goes past, it could be such a, and in fact, it's probably the the formerly the least creative, or the you know the least creative scene or the least interesting scene in the entire films. But the the there's such a dynamism in the performances and the detail of each of the performance that you can kind of, they get elevated to along those other scenes. But like sometimes it's like someone driving out of an underpass that looks like a cathedral, you know, and, and they're yeah. like a little portable confessional driving out of it. You're like, wow, this is amazing. You know, I couldn't believe that this could exist in this movie, but it's there. It's all there. It's on screen. It's crazy. Isn't it, 
even the camera work in this sequence that we've just viewed, I mean, it, you know, you're essentially looking at four guys in a room talking, but the way it just sort of plays with this sort of ballet uh, of, of their, their standing and it just sort of like weaves around them, uh, it's, just, it's just really impressive. I mean, it all goes down to that scope cinematography. I mean, the, the, that, that yeah. two, three, five to one frame. You know, the fact that man can make an office look dynamic in a, uh, you know, a scope frame is really just all about his 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 visual iconography, I think, uh, and the way he can position characters. And you lose that when you lose that scope frame. Yeah. Um, and, and if this, um, I remember when you used to see old VHS tapes uh, back in the day where they were just starting to bring out uh, widescreen versions of films on cassette. Uh, you know, after after the, the the pan and scan era. And they would show you a, a you know, sort of, uh, I'd say, a side-to-side comparison of, um, of certain films. And you, if there was ever a film to be able to show that to people, it would be this film. Because, look, I mean, you, you look at that kind of shot that's just going on um, in, in the background there, Blake, as you just uh, screened yeah. it. And it's literally just this, this three – a character would have to be cut off in that in that oh, sequence if he was going to pan scan it you just nailed i think exactly why there was the crazy fan theory that mm. pacino and de niro were never in the same scene because in the <laughs> yep. pan and scan version you wouldn't see that it's his head like you yep. wouldn't see that it's even there you'd just go oh i didn't even know that and what's even more frustrating from a home viewing perspective and i know this is a bit random but it's it's sort of tangentially it's right is because you know christopher nolan's such a man fanboy um, yeah. I, I flicked on the opening scene of The Dark Knight Rises. I was like, I haven't watched The Dark Knight Rises, which arguably, you know, is maybe my favourite of those three films. And we can sure. that's a, that starts a whole other conversation. So I won't go down that rabbit hole. But I was watching it and famously shot that opening sort of six, seven minute sequence of shot in IMAX, which just usually fills your complete TV screen. And then it transforms mm. to your sort of normal, I think, two, 235 to one, 35 mil look for the rest of the film. Um, mm. Netflix have like pan and scanned it so it's all the same. It's all the same. And I, I turned it on and I was watching it and I was like, this is the wrong aspect ratio. Like I, I, I don't care as a as a nerd that the aspect ratio changes with the film stock in on the Blu-ray, but I'm like, mm. this is wrong. Like it's, it's yeah. wrong. And I had to turn it off. I had to go down you know, I had to go down to my garage. Because <laughs> I'm in a smaller house these days. I had to go down to the garage to the the the, the a few storage containers of Blu-rays, and I'm like digging out the Dark Knight ones because they weren't urgently to the provided. To yeah, to had to go to the archive. Reference archive. I had to go to the reference yeah. archive. I'm like, no, nah, this is wrong. Can't bring it back upstairs. Play it on the Blu-ray player. I'm ah, like, oh, yeah, there, there it is. That's that's what I want to see. I don't want to see this rubbish, like you know, sixteen by nine standardization of cinema. I'm like, no, this is not right. Give me my. And it's Blu-rays. really funny. Certain films, you can just you know something is wrong with them. When, yes. you, when you say it that way, and if you, you know, even if you're in a theatre and it's uh, you know sadly being projected incorrectly, if the wrong lens is on the projector or the masking has it open correctly, yeah. you know some films, you know you, that you you, you don't understand, it, you don't realise, it and it just kind of plays out in front of you. But when you see a film like this, and then, you know obviously uh, the the Nolan verse as well, um, you've just got this instinctual knowledge that something is not correct because it doesn't feel natural yeah. at all. And I think they just they have the ability to capture their vision so naturalistically on screen that um, you, you just know instinctively that there's something wrong. I, I would love to see on the Aster, and I don't know, you could absolutely tell me, I'm sure you know, the 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 searches, John Ford's The Searches, was in yep. stereoscope, which is yep. a weird 
aspect ratio. I don't know if you know what the dimensions are off the top of your head, but it's a weird aspect ratio. And it's so amazing is because some of those um, sort of what you'd probably call like mid-focus cluttered conversation scenes that unfold in the house, everyone is so crisply in focus that things can be happening in the fore and background and the mid-ground of the frame all at the same time and they capture your interest all yeah. at the same time. And that's another one, that's another movie that I like if 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 you ever saw a pan and scan, it's it's not you have you would have no idea what you're watching. It's not the same yeah, movie. It's... it's not the same movie. It's just it's not the same movie as when you've got the sprawling frame to sort of you know, you're you're the person who's panning the frame to find the things that are really, you know, grab, grabbing your interest in any given moment. And you certainly wouldn't see the, uh, you know, um, the slightly agitated Pacino neck vein, which we <laughs> yes. get in this scene as well. It's this yes. little, I mean, that's a, I think that's a whole, if we're talking about Pacino's eyes, that's one thing. But we could also go through and systematically work out the, the, the neck vein acting, which is going on in this film. He just, it just got this little kind of like, as soon as the, the yell's about to come, there's this little kind of tickle in his neck vein that I think is quite telling as well. I just love Wes Studi. We're playing it silently as we're chatting. I love that Wes Studi's Casals is the guy who actually has the balls to say, because yeah, yeah. you see Michael D. Williamson who towers over him is like, I don't want to fucking yeah. tell him. And you see Ted Levine exactly as you said, hunched over. He barely, like yeah. for literally most of this entire scene, he has not said a word. He's just no. like oh, I'm not even bothering. This is not <laughs> this is not a productive moment for me to tell him. And it's like who I I, I just often wonder the split second before you come into the scene who drew the short straw. Was it because yeah. I was just like you got to tell yeah. him. You got fucking yeah. someone's got to tell him. I don't want I don't I don't want any part of telling him. It's not going to happen. It's totally not going to happen. But I well, yeah, so good here. That's an interesting kind of idea too, like because probably in your research you'd have much more of knowledge uh, of it than I would. But do we know how many takes man usually does? Is he a Kubrickian sort of mad taker where he'll do like you know fifty to sixty takes of one thing, or is he much more of a sort of organic director in terms of well, you know, we got that, we're going to move on? Because this to me feels like something that would have been a lot of takes. This thing, he's it's weird, Zach, because the the famous coffee shop scene, he said is take 11. Yeah. And so I would assume they probably did about 15 to 20 takes of that scene. Um, and what's funny is if you have a look at the trailers on even the the really beautiful new 4K Blu-ray that they brought out, one of the trailers has a line reading from the conversation scene. Like if they show you the original theatrical trailers, that's not this cut. It's an yeah. earlier cut. Someone's just cut it together from one of the, one of the perspective takes, I think. Um, so, yeah, take 11 is what he said, but there's this weird other thing that man often says, and I'll, I'll just sort of paraphrase. It's something to the effect of they only get it right once. He doesn't like over-rehearsing the scene, mm-hmm. and he, they only ever get it right once, and I think I've got a feeling that he's sort of a – that's his wheelhouse, probably between 10 and 20 takes. He's not quite Kubrickian yeah. to the, or like mm-hmm. Fincher, like 70, yeah. 50. Yeah. Yeah. It's not ridiculous because I think that man, man's the kind of guy where after all the preparation and after all the craziness, if he gets the take, I think he knows he's got it. Does that make sense? I don't know if that's yeah. a weird thing to say, but it's like in every bit of research that I've done, he seems like the guy that he's like, we get it right once. He goes, I, yeah. he, he said this line many times in many interviews. The perfect take comes once and there's one that's close to perfect. And if you do it too many times, you just lose it. 
Yeah, well, that's why I think that for me, the, this conversation that they're having, uh, whilst you know, there's certainly a power play dynamic going on, it does feel incredibly organic. Yes, uh, and I think that that's where that obviously comes into play because it, it does feel like this is just a conversation is just happening. Yes, you know, I, I, that that really comes off the screen to me. They're, especially because they ad libbed the whole dream sequence. That, that the yeah. dreams, the the dream conversations are for folks. You know, I'm not not sure if you're listening back to back of the conversation minutes. You probably heard this before, but just to say, just to sort of um, catch you up if you if you haven't quite listened to them yet, is you know the dream sequence is the big ad lib. That's the one that they just it was not on the page. It wasn't anything, and it was something that Pacino felt like he wanted to go down that path, and. They just they they worked it together. They'd only ever done a screen, uh, sorry, they'd only ever done a table read of this, the whole film with the cast once they were completely cast. They never rehearsed this scene. And one thing, this is a really interesting one. Like for you know, we've talked a lot about Pacino, but for De Niro, who is such an icon um, himself, I I heard a great interview where he said, "I I told Al and I we shouldn't rehearse for this scene. We should just do it." And for him, the reason he said that was, he goes, we haven't got any complex blocking or we're not moving, so let's just do it. It's just you and me. And so to have the sheer confidence of like his craft from a, from his face, you know, knowing that his whole face is basically going to fill the screen, you know, for him, rehearsing is about movement. It's about what else the character's doing in the movement. He's like, I don't have to rehearse if I'm just sitting across the table with someone and the camera's in my face. Like I know the character inside and out mm. i'm just going to be able to portray him so that was one of my little tidbits there of these two guys like generating this and i think i think these guys all in this sequence here i don't know how many times they would want to do it like this this great this great sequence here i i think mm. pacino's got to do a lot of the heavy lifting here he's got to do that great yeah. arc these guys yeah. have got to just go they, they dumped us yeah you know and 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 they're, they've all got to kind of be frustrated and watch him go from complete confidence and swagger to yeah. now completely pissed off and now what the hell do we do and next they're gone that 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 exhaustion kicks in yes. yeah yeah um yeah i think that's that's a really interesting point i mean the, the other thing that i'm constantly thinking of when i when i look at these these films as well too is like man's career has now become or you know really linked to digital technology and i i don't think heat would be the same if it was filmed digitally, no, I, I don't think if you, if, if you were looking at it and it, it seems funny to say, cause it is such a gritty film and it's such a, uh, uh, you know, a dark film in, in, in so many ways, but that's where I think the, the depth and, and the beauty of, of, of 35 millimeter really comes into play. Even when you're in this sort of urban, uh, menagerie that we, we find ourselves in throughout this film. And, Love that. you know, urban I, menagerie. I just, it, urban menagerie. It's, it's his last classic you know, really classically shot film. You know, even yeah. The Insider, which is again beautifully shot in thirty-five mil. It starts. I, I think. I think of the moment. There's an amazing moment in The Insider for folks who, you know, don't have a strong recollection of it. Or if you've never seen it, there's sort of this centerpiece moment of the film where uh, um, Wygant, Jeffrey Wygant, played by Russell Crowe, which is. I think one of his most criminally underrated performances of his entire career, like probably yeah, the, the film that deserved the Oscar way more than Gladiator ever did. Um, this incredible performance that he does. Um, Pacino comes back to back with man in this one as Lowell Bergman. And it's a scene where he's at a driving range 
and it's this you know this beautiful little scene is like a microcosm of those sort of paranoia thrillers from 70s new hollywood where you feel like everything is everything's all hunky-dory and everything's all right but the whole world is going against you and it's in that scene that man starts using those really uh those up close like little video experimentation cameras that like mm. get really claustrophobic in your face yeah. and and he he does it a lot more for the movement in Ali like there's some great fight scenes where you know man's literally standing behind Will Smith as he's jabbing and you get this really great POV shots over the shoulder you know his characteristic POV shots but they're like you're in the ring and I think yeah. that that's kind of the moment that he sort of really drastically goes I need to explore other technological options. It's like not classic anymore. But, you know, Dante Spinotti famously, he said, Zach, in the, the helicopters, you know, they're, they're overexposing the film. He's like hanging out of a helicopter in, with a torch, like trying yeah. to light another helicopter while it's flying through the middle of LA. And those sprawling LA nights in, in, and those sprawling Miami nights that we see um, later on are all just, you know, beautifully crisp in digital film. But I think it's like, you know, this is the last classic, that classic version of that before it goes through it's a beautiful sort of full stop of like this is me making a classical film film yeah because of a i i certainly see it as a, a sort of a, a weird you know unofficial trilogy within within man's sort of career you've got thief you've got heat and you've also got collateral yes um but i just uh you know as soon as we i think it all works uh, the, the the different formats and different styles it feels very natural the way that sort of progresses yes but when you get to something like public enemies i remember seeing public enemies and i was just like what in the hell am i watching <laughs> and i had this weird kind of uh, moment of complete sort of you know cinema schizophrenia where i was being projectionist at the time and i was i was showing public enemies on 35 millimeter film but it was giving off that digital image yes yes and that yeah it was right in that 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 changeover period and it's just it's never really left me of just of just how bad public enemies looks um and i've never i i remember i wanted to like that film so badly and and i'm not a i'm not a formatist you know i'm 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 very open to uh to to different screen formats but that for me was just the, the 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 complete failure of uh, of digital cinema at that time uh, it certainly moved on you know you know fantastically since then uh but um there was just an absolute letdown for me and i just i could never get past and i've never seen public enemies again nor, nor probably will I. It, i've seen it many times public enemies but i i agree with you because i have this weird i mean a weird two minds about the digital in public enemies one is you know it, it is kind of grating you know there are some spectacular mm. shots in it um, but it is kind of grating the digital and the very organic sort of nine, you know, early nineteen hundreds, you know, setting. I think the, the production I think design the for- just craves celluloid. Yeah, the the format like is grating against the the production design, and and yeah. especially because two years after Heat, Dante Spinotti lensed what I think is the other most beautiful, except for maybe Chinatown, is the other most beautiful L.A. crime film ever made, which is Curtis Hanson's L.A. Confidential. And to think of the Dante Spinotti who shot that, being able to shoot Public Enemies with that beautiful old celluloid, it would have just, I think, could have elevated it in such an unbelievable way, especially... You know the jailbreak scenes, and you know those those things. The bank, you know, the opening bank heist 
so much of it, it's just like, oh, I wish this had a little bit more texture. It's so tough and rough. But it's, you know, it's that, it's it's man, you know, constantly pushing pushing the limits, so to speak. Not all of it works. I don't think all of it works in the in no, experimental I mean, I phase. Look, but, I, I, but I, I, you know, I think, I think that's, uh, it's just sort of one of those things. And I'll, I'll certainly give it, you know, I'll certainly give it to him that I think it's, it's great that he was pushing the envelope. Uh, but it's just, yeah, it was just for, for me, I think, you know, that, that would have been a great almost coder in a way to that unofficial sub trilogy that he had going on uh, in his work to be able to go back and regress to, uh, you know, the early 1900s of, of, of the heist movie or, yes. or, or the crime film. It, but it just felt like it was a bit of, it, it ended on a bit of a dead note for me. So, yeah. um, but look, we, we always have, um, you know, uh, Thief, uh, which is all one of my all time favorite films as well. I absolutely adore Thief. Uh, but um, Thief, Thief is, yeah. Thief is right. You know, Thief is right there. It's, uh, it's, uh, he's, um, you know, the other one, the other one that I think that totally just laps up the digital is Miami Vice. Mm. Totally. My, no, my, I, Miami, yeah. Miami Vice is that other one where it's like the modernity, and the and especially because it's like by os, pure osmosis, um, Miami had the worst hurricane season ever yes. when he shot the film, and so instead of these, you know, the glorious, um, uh, you know, uh, pas, pastels of the series, like being able to sort of evoke that, like it's all hurricanes, it's all you know, just ghastly weather. So it's like, oh, a lot of stuff changed tonight. A lot of scenes changed tonight. A lot of locations yeah. changed. Tonight. It's like, so, so then, then the night lights and all that sort of weird, um, uh, that sort of weird yellowy golden light of, uh, that was sort of that, um, ambience that's coming off the city. Just like it, 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 it it's almost like a, it's like candlelight almost. It's beautiful in that digital photography. It's really ethereal and cool and, uh, and mystical in some senses as well as being like really crisp and harsh and, gr- and you know, gritty uh, for all the other crime stuff. So yeah, no, it, it, I think it's, yeah, you watch those two together and one of them fits like a glove and the other one you're like, ugh. Give me some cellular. Give me some cellular. The other cellular. thing that really, really gets me about Miami Vice, I, I, I'm a huge fan of Miami Vice, but it's got the strangest closing shot of any Michael Mann film <laughs> yeah. I think I've seen. It's just, you know, he's just walking into an ER room. That's um, just, uh, you know, no spoilers, but uh, it's just, uh, <laughs> I, I would I would love to see, you know, like um, a, a super cut of all the last shots of a Michael Mann film. And I reckon out of all of them, the Miami Vice one would be the strangest yeah, one that would ever be committed to screen. It is pretty strange. It is pretty strange. It's It, um, it, it doesn't have... You know, you think of the crescendos that some of his final shots, you know, like the like Last of the Mohicans, yeah. you know, uh, on a clifftop, that swelling Oscar-winning score, Heat, uh, you know, not to mention it too much, God Moving Over the Face yeah. of Waters, one of the most unbelievable scenes ever, still floors me every time I've seen it, and I've seen this movie hundreds of times. Um, I'm just trying to think of the ins- – uh, what's The Insider? Oh, The Insider with uh, Lowell Bergman, Al Pacino. He's like in the vortex. He like pushes yeah. through the door and the score swells. Yeah, it's amazing. And, that one is just like, Man- eh. Manhunter, Manhunter, there's this very picturesque beak shot, and then yes. that, you know, the, the, the 80s uh, hair metal kicks in. <laughs> um, but I um, – you know, I just – yeah, Miami Vice, every time I go back to it, I've, I have – seen Miami Vice quite a few times and I, I really dig it but every time I'm like wow that's a that's that's a weird ending okay yeah yeah so, wow that's uh 
that's that's what that is. Uh, but luckily, luckily he's uh, you know he's got a lot of others uh, in the engine. So, uh, but look, I look I, every time I, I view this show, and it's it's been doing this podcast has been a great excuse for me to go back uh, into the the, the man verse because I've I've really been out of it for a while. I've I've not gone back to a Michael Mann film uh, since playing Heat at, at the at the cinema, and you know just to talk about the power of Heat, like we we uh, through various different uh, schedulings. Uh, ended up playing the film uh, at like 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning for one session because we had extra room to go, well, we'll throw an extra session of heating because we were playing it as part of a, a film festival run. And I thought, well, look, you know, we'll just play it and, and, and we'll get what we get. We had like almost 100 people at 11 a.m. <laughs> on a Saturday morning. Yes, to see heat and, my to people. See heat 4K. So like, and, and that was only, you know, um, uh, last year. So that, that to me showcase that right. there was still a huge uh, level of interest in this film that I, I don't think will will ever go away. I think it's it's always going to be one of those films that is part of the canon. Yeah, I think it's a huge I think it's I think it's his uh I just recently spoke to the the most recent episode that as we're talking that aired is uh, an episode with Sean Burns and he just he he talked about um he talked about heat in, in in really great terms is like man's like the perfect um it's like the perfect synthesis of his whole yep. pet oh sorry he sorry i get the exact quote is the purest expression of the filmmaker's pet themes and and so and and i and i think that i think some some films are just like they hit a filmmaker and they're so perfectly attuned to their sensibility and and their craft at that moment, or they've been stewing on a theme, and especially because he got to do this as like a do over from the LA Takedown script, the LA Takedown film, yeah. Yeah. So when he gets to sort of roll into heat, it's just something wholly different. Again, it's something, it's something else. And yeah, I, I think that what is funny though, Zach, and you're an exhibitor now, of course. So there are some strange, like uh, these are my man people, but I, I love you guys if you're listening. But there are some weirdos who are like the latest man film is the one that they think has both been most criminally underrated, and they're like it's amazing. So like people will be like Black Hat, it's the best Michael Mann film, and I just go, my my first thing to say to those people is just stop, okay? Just stop. Yeah, you yeah. guys just need to stop and and just pause for a second. Oh, it's the greatest. It's one of the you know it's criminally underrated. Is it? Is it? Like, Look, if it can even breathe in the same conversation as Thief and Heat and The Insider, yeah. and, and Collateral for that matter, and Miami Vice for that matter, like, if it, if it even gets into that conversation, that top five, go, go ahead. But it's still got to knock out Jericho Mile and Manhunter. Yeah, that's it. Yep. It's, it's like, there are so many other great ones. I'm like, ugh, there are some weirdos out there that are still trying to tell me Black Hat's good, and I just won't buy it. I can't. Well, I look, I, I, and you know, cards on the table. I'm the biggest <laughs> David Lynch apologist probably out there, and I will have a lot of people also say to me, you know, Inland Empire. That's that's an underrated. That's an underrated <laughs> film. Like, look, it's, it might be an underrated uh, gallery installation, but uh, I don't I don't know if it's an underrated film. Yes. Uh, you know, m- much love to David, but uh, and, and I think, yeah, that's a really interesting, interesting point about that 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 perfect sort of encapsulation of of a filmmaker's yeah. uh, core themes so, you know for me that 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 is without a doubt a razor head with david Lynch. it's without a doubt it's dead ringers with david cronenberg yes uh you know it's just that it's amazing that when filmmakers 
latch on to something, they can imbue it with this sense of passion and just overall control that audiences still are constantly receptive to, even when they've made, you know, dozens of films. Yes. Uh, and, and I think, you know, we see that with Scorsese as well. Uh, you know, for, for me, that, that, that encapsulation is, is, uh, is Taxi Driver. Yeah. And every, every time you play Taxi Driver, you just get so many people coming out to it. Whereas, you know, we, we played, uh, you know, New York, New York recently, which is a film I adore and, you know, no, no one turned up. Yes. It's, (laughs) it's funny how, when, when you do these sort of, you know, uh, career spanning filmography, retrospective seasons, what audiences are still attaching themselves to. And and I would um, imagine with Scorsese, it's all the, you know, all the usual suspects, so to speak. It's, you know, it's mean, when you throw on main streets and taxi driver and Goodfellas, you're going to get those, those three, out of his entire over casino um those three out of, or four out of there are, are always going to have a stack of people trying to get and clawing themselves to get to it every time you try and give them the flip side of after hours or bringing out the yeah. dead people like, i don't i don't want that nah, thank you take, no, that, take that away from me look so, thank look, you very and, thank you very much zach but no we'll, we'll no, come, please we'll watch another please. session and of it, goodfellas exactly and look that that would be an interesting call with if if uh, a man filmography season was to to eventuate because I would be very interested to see if uh, Manhunter is a film I've wanted to play at the cinema Love since Manhunter. I started in in the realm of cinema programming and uh, regrettably uh, there's no real strong uh, film elements for it in this country uh, so it's something that's been absent from screens for many years but I, I feel that uh, you know that film uh, may struggle to get people nowadays regrettably so uh, I think but you know if you, if it's you were put on you were put on heat you would have you know people lining up around the block but rightly so but, but yeah it's weird right but I, I think man I think Manhunter you can persevere if you get it you should go with it and just talk about it being a Hannibal Lecter movie because there was the yeah. Hannibal series people love it you know yeah. so you know I'm, I'm a fanable um, I'm right there and I think there's there's a lot of folk out there that want to see you know it's it's so funny the um, you know people going back and revisiting a performance there's not really too many more than like Brian Cox's uh, you know, incredible Hannibal Lecter um, mm. is is always talked about. Is always talked about as someone like the more than more people saw Anthony Hopkins in the role of Hannibal Lecter, they're like, you know, I really like to see Brian Cox. I really yeah. would have liked to see what Brian Cox did with it. And it's so, you know, maybe not for the maybe not. I think you know, there's there's perfect filmmakers that come along. Um, you know, and I think Silence of the Lambs is is that is is that is is that perfect thing that you didn't want Michael Mann to have to do, but you know, maybe for Hannibal, would have been nice for him to come back with Brian Cox and see how that played um, out. Well, Mann's again, I think it goes back to his the way he frames things and his his pacing, his editing as well, because you know the, the sequence in in, in Manhunter where. Um, uh, Hannibal's in the cell and he's like uh, dialing out to be able to get Will Graham's contact details outside of the prison. I mean, man and Cox in that sequence managed to make a stick of gum and a telephone scary. Oh yes. And I think that's that's a really uh, strong testament to to man's ability to be able to create tension to his rhythmic editing and his his framing. Because uh, uh, the, the performer himself in the in the scene is actually doing very little to be scary, but it's just the way that it flows. Is very abs- the, the absence of music, I think, is, is really important in that scene. Uh, but yeah, Manhunter is a film. That I really hope that uh, when people do look at Man's career, they they do reevaluate. Um, and uh, the Keep being one as well, but that's um, you know that's got its own whole. That's a whole. That's a whole other conversation. So, yeah. That, that- 
So, look, as we sit as we sit here at the end of the 96th minute and we watch Al Pacino on the precipice of a swear, I want to thank Dr. Zach Hepburn for coming along um, to be a part of the show. Zach, thank you so much for being a part of the show. If there is a man retrospective, I want a text message with a with a now as a dad of two. Give me some time in advance to well, lay mean, the groundwork to lay the groundwork <laughs> to to travel to Melbourne to be at the Astor to see some of his glorious films in that in that in your chapel, Reverend, in I your mean, chapel. Blake, well, I think what we need to do is a manathon and have oh. you podcast live podcast the full twenty four hours of, of of the manathon. Ladies, so, you're here. To, you heard it here first. Yeah. I'm, I'm. It's an exclusive. <laughs> it's an exclusive. I will be there. I will be there to do that. Uh, if that if that event happens, I'm on hand. You guys heard it here. Um, I'm on the hook. So thank you so much for doing this. I really, really, really appreciate it, guys. You no. can catch Zach. Of course, um, you can visit his sermons at the Astor Theatre in Melbourne. Um, one of the most glorious um, old cinema houses and internationally renowned cinema house. One of the most enviable programs, someone who is based in Sydney. Um, I still subscribe to all the Asta stuff and I get all the emails and I still go and check out what the program is and I just gasp at uh, how amazing it is. Most recently, the Nick Cage-a-thon with the Melbourne International Film Festival um, was was just um, mwah, sublime. So well done, Zach, um, on that again. Um, if you want to follow Zach... Um, he's on the Twitter at Dr. Zach Hepburn, Dr. Z-A-K Hepburn, H-E-P-B-U-R-N, um, ABC uh, News 24, or sorry, not 24 anymore, ABC News, you can catch him at breakfast doing movie reviews every week, um, you can catch him there, um, or if you want, just go to the Astor, best cinema in Melbourne. Is there anything else, anywhere else they need to find you, Zach? No, uh, look like I am uh, always just around trying to get uh, Al Pacino to say the swear word that I'm going to go and hear him say in a minute closure on that anecdote. Uh, but no, look, I'm a man about town. You, you'll find me where any movies are playing usually. But uh, it's been a real joy uh, discussing this film with you two and uh, rekindling my love for, for Michael Mann. Oh, so thank you very much, sir. You are more than welcome. Guys, um, thank you for listening. Um, thank you to Mr. Garth Franklin for our web design, Mr. Paul Davies for our awesome theme. And... Uh, Look, Zach, thank you for being a part of what is, I think, uh, you just touched on the coda of seven of the greatest minutes of motion picture acting um, that has ever been committed to celluloid. You have just kissed the end of it, and we have said farewell to the the cafe scene in Heat. Um, It has been a huge one, and I know lots of people have been looking forward to it. So just a little special thank you so much for sticking around, and, uh, and I hope you really enjoyed the murderer's row of guests that we had for these uh, these minutes, So, and Zach being one of them. So thank you so much. Guys, we will catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner.